All right. Well, church, that time of worship was very sweet. Thank you for worshiping with me. I uh, really appreciate you being here. Uh, so just a, a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, we are continuing to pray. I know I said we wanted to launch uh, in January, but we, the elders, have decided we really want to continue to pray over our mission and our vision, our purpose as a church. We're laboring, we're praying, we're having hard discussions. And so I just want to encourage you, would you continue to join us in praying praying and pleading for God to help us come into uh, alignment with His mission, His vision, and goal for our church. Amen? So that's a request. That's a plea. That's a please pray for us as we have these conversations that the Holy Spirit would be in and, and full, of those, uh, full of those conversations. Uh, next up, um, I've just been asked to share a little bit about some of our security procedure. As you guys know, um, we're growing as a church. We've got incredibly growing children's ministries and family ministries, and we're doing everything we can. If you see our nursery remains locked, we make sure that we have people in the hallways always at all times, making sure that the right people are where they should be and that nobody is to cross into our children's area. And as we know, this whole wing of our church is where our children's ministries happen. And so we ask you, if you see there's a sign that says, please stop, that's because we take the safety of our children very, 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 very seriously here at First Baptist. And so um, we just wanted to uh, give you those updates as we continue to work on and get better in our security processes here at the church. When I was a young man, I did not make very much money. Anybody there? I remember... <laughs> As a young, bright-eyed college student, I met a beautiful young lady named Becky at college, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that she was going to be my wife. And uh, I remember I, the, the only problem with that was uh, I was broke. And I remember I was a summer missionary, so I decided to go and, and be a summer missionary. And the thing about being a summer missionary is you got your room and your board paid for. And for the year, I probably made a whopping $1,000. That was my annual income. I ate <laughs> as a summer missionary, but at the end of the year, I had made a whopping $1,000. And I was so excited to come home off of the missions field. I'd traveled all over Wyoming, but the whole time I had my phone in my hand and I had Becky on speed dial. And we were excited because when I came back, I knew that I was going to propose to her, but there was one problem. I needed to purchase a ring. And gentlemen, do you know what the general rule was uh, for how much a ring should cost? Ladies will tell you. How much is a ring supposed to cost the guy? They, they, a year's salary, a year or six months of salary. That's what I was told by the lady group. Okay, I'm not the only one that's heard that. Okay, that's good. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, I made $1,000 for the year and I'm going to purchase this ring. Um, and it was absolutely and totally worth it. The little bit, the tiny little bit that I brought has since brought me mountains and mountains of joy as a married man uh, and, and mountains and mountains of joy. But as we got married, one of the things that I noticed was that I was terrible managing money. Anybody heard of this thing called a budget? I was unaware of one of those. And so our first four years of marriage uh, became a time of feast and famine because I thought that's how you were supposed to live with money. When you had it, you spent it. When you don't, you don't. 
That's not a wise way to, to use your money. And my wife looked at me, and those first four years, she bared with me, and this is how we handled our money. And it was like, we can't spend any money. we got to live on top ramen. Okay, now we can take you out to date. Uh, you know, we can go to a fine restaurant after that. Money always seemed to escape me. And then I learned about this thing called a budget and how you could glorify God with a budget, and you could let your wife not be stressed out about the money that she was spending because you could tell her exactly what she could spend based on your income. Men, if you haven't done this for your family, today's the day to start. But how we manage our money is very important. It shows what is important to us, yes, doesn't it? And I got to tell you, as I talk about uh, today, um, you can suppose that pastor's favorite topic in the Bible is giving and, and money, right? No, that's not our favorite thing to talk about. I can tell you most pastors will say they will avoid this topic like the plague because it always comes across as you are, you are trying to compel people to give money. And, but the Bible, and the unavoidable truth is the Bible has a lot to say about how we spend our money. And so as I stand before you today, I want to show you something. This little, oh, we still don't have slides here. Let's try this. And maybe we will have slides. Maybe. And while it's getting there, um, this is a picture I'm about to show you of what's called the widow's mite. The widow's mite. Oh, do we got it? There we go. Okay, so this little picture, and this is actually Kurt, if you guys know from our, it's going to get there eventually. Maybe. Come on. There it is. The widow's mite. So that little coin right there, this is actually Kurt. Kurt has a picture. This is an actual widow's mite. If you want to talk to Kurt, he's got a, a, a one of these. This is a widow's mite. The passage we're going to talk about today is the widow's mite. Um, but I'm going to quote the great, uh, we'll call him the great uh, prophet Gandalf. That's a joke. He's not a great prophet. And he says, some believe it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I have found that it is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Small acts of kindness and love. And so that is the principle that we see when it comes to the widow's might. God can take what little we have, and it is worth or val more, much more valuable than we think it is. Just like I only had $1,000 for an entire year, but the decision to invest that in the way that I did changed the rest of my life. There is a high value in the kingdom of God for those who have a little to give. Isn't that encouraging? There we go. And it is lagging, really. Bear with me this morning, guys. So let's go ahead and jump in our Bibles. Mark 12, Mark 12, starting in verse 41 through 44. With the reminder that Paul gives us in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Mark 12, 41, if you follow along with me in your Bibles, it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. This is Jesus. Many rich people part put a, in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny, which make a penny. Verse 43, and he called the disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. 
for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would help us to be loving givers, cheerful givers, givers with the right motivation, because it's not about the amount that we give, but the heart that we give with. Lord, I pray that you would go to work on our heart and our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, I'm going to try, try something really quick, Kenny, here, so I can maybe get our slides up and running a little better. But in the meantime... So when we begin to talk about money, particularly out of this passage, we need to know that there are two mistakes that we can make. There are multiple mistakes that we can make when we look at a perspective on how to give, how to give, and what to give to. Let's see, is it working a little better there? Maybe a little faster. So number one, so today we're talking about avoid easy giving in favor of love giving. Avoid easy giving in favor of love giving. The two ditches that we can fall into or the mistakes when we start to think about giving as out of this passage is, number one, we can be giving as a law, as a rule, as a regulation. How many of you have ever been forced to give money to something? It's called taxes. Right? Right? There isn't an option. You you. You and it's a law. Like if you if you don't, you get penalized. And so, too many of us then take that type of giving, and we start to let that dictate how we give. And so, then we start to think of it in, in terms of a law. And you've heard this law probably. I bet you've heard it called the tenth or the tithe. You ever heard the word tithe? The word tithe means tenth, and it's a biblical principle. It's it's a biblical law in the Old Testament. It's called the law of tithing. Uh, and so tithing, it literally means the tenth. So many of us would look at the Old Testament and say, this is a rule, this is a law, this is a regulation. And so we'll view tithing and giving to the church much like we view taxes. It's just, it's not an option. It's a law. It's a rule that we have to follow. Now, this is an error because God does not want to give uh, want us to give our resources, our time, our money, because we have to. Because we have to. He wants us to be people who give because we want to, because we love him out of love. And so we don't want to be giving as a rule or as a law. So this is the first ditch. And see, here's why we can say that in the New Testament era, the tithe no longer is the rule. Let me look at Luke 18.22. And I got this uh, from help from a, a pastor named J.D. Greer. Uh, Luke 18.22 says Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler. Do you guys remember the conversation with the rich young ruler? He has tons of money. And what does Jesus say to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 22? He says, give away all of your money, every penny, and come and follow me. Well, that's, he says all. Clearly there, the, the challenge to the rich young ruler was to give everything, not a tenth, everything, right? How many of you are like, well, that's a little bit more than what I was expecting, but let's continue on. In Luke 11, Jesus is referring to how some people give, and he says, you tithe, which is giving away 10%. And what does Jesus say about giving away 10%? He says, this is good. So giving away 10% of your income is good. It's good. Well, he tells the rich young ruler 100%. He tells these people it's good to give 10%. And then it continues. Here in Luke 19, 9, Zacchaeus gives away... 50%. 
And Jesus says, that is very good and proves you've been saved. Jesus, land the plane. Give me a rule. Give me a clear boundary of what I'm supposed to give so I can just know exactly what to give. Jesus doesn't just give us a law or a rule, does he? Because why? He wants relationship. He doesn't want us to just give out of a rule, but he wants relationship with us. He wants relationship with us. Not to follow a law or follow a rule. He wants relationship. And so a relationship is variable, isn't it? He wants us to seek him on what we are to give. And see, here is why giving is a very personal tied to our relationship with God, isn't it? Because whether you give a lot, whether you give a little, whether you give all your income or none of your, well, you probably should give some, but that's all up to you and your relationship with God. That's why here at the church, I make sure that I don't see any of the giving. And that's a rule. We only have one person in the church that gets to look at giving and file it. I don't want to know what's given because I don't want to fall into the other camp or the other problem is the other one is giving out of guilt. Have you ever had to give because you felt guilty? Let me give you an example. Have you ever heard the commercial that starts with the arms of the angels? You've heard that, right? Sarah McLaughlin. And then what's on the screen? Sad puppy dogs. You're like, I feel so bad. I'm eating breakfast cereal and they're starving. And you feel guilty. And so what are you? You're, com- you're, you're compelled to give. And so here, that's another, that's what we call an error in how we view giving, that, that it's never enough. I give it all and now I'm miserable, but people are still starving. It's never enough. Compulsory giving is never enough. You've probably heard your parents say, There are kids in Africa that are starving. That's why you should eat your food, right? And I always wondered about that as a kid. Like, that doesn't make sense to me because it's not like I can ship them my broccoli. But it says, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Some of you have the gift of giving, and you're like, this just makes sense to me. I love to give. Others of you are stingy. Don't worry. I struggle with that. I grew up in, like, that was the stinginess was a high value for my family, and so I struggle with a, a heart of stinginess. But there's that sense, right, that, that we give cheerfully. We give cheerfully. That is, it doesn't say give a lot, or, or out of, it just says not out of compulsion, out of cheer. That's why you're never going to hear me try to guilt trip people into giving, and nor should you hear this at a church, because compulsory giving is not a concept that we uh, that is biblical. Also, as I talk about, there is no end to compulsory giving. So no matter if you give all of your wealth, so if you think of every cent that you make, if you give all of it, is poverty going to cease? Okay. Is starvation in the world going to cease? No. In fact, Jesus said the poor will always be with you, right? And so there is this sense that, that no matter what we give, it's not going to solve all of the social ills of our day. It's not always going to solve all the problems because money isn't at the root of the problem, amen? Sin is at the root of the problem. And see, here's why Jesus begins to talk about our relationship to money, because it actually is getting to the core issue, which is the sin in our life. And so, so there is no shame. The first thing that we need to see from the widow's 
might is that there is no shame for the small gifts. You have all of these men that are parading around their wealth and they're laying it in the treasury. You can imagine, as we just heard about the scribes who were very deserving and self-entitled, they wanted to be a show. And so they were saying, look how much I'm giving. They were trying to make it a show. There's one time I heard a, a pastor bragging. Uh, I'll never forget, I sat in this sermon and he goes, I give 99% of my income. And he said this on stage, and I was like, that doesn't sound like the biblical principle of not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? But he was bragging about this, and this, this kind of happens sometimes in the church. But see here, Jesus looks at the widow, and as she brings her small offering, a couple of pennies. How many of you have got pennies hanging out on the floor of your car somewhere at this point? Or in the bottom of your couch? This is all she had to live on, and she brings it forward, and he says, what? He says that she has given more than all of them combined. Do you see how the economy of the Lord is different? It's not based on monetary value, but heavenly value. Heavenly value. That's an encouragement for us. How many of you feel like you live on limited resources? Go ahead. It's okay. You can raise your hand. It's okay. We all live on limited resources. It's okay. I had a pastor friend of mine used to say that... Um, we have limited resources, then we serve a God who has unlimited resources. Uh, I'm so thankful that God doesn't depend on how much wealth I bring to the table or how skilled I am. Whatever little I have to give, he can take, and he shows that that is of heavenly value. So if you're here today and you're like, I just don't have much to give. I don't have much to bring to the table. Here Jesus is saying, you have a lot to bring to the table. If you come with a cheerful heart, you have a lot to bring to the table, not just your, mo your money, but your gifts. How many of you feel like you have, uh, I know some of our shy people are like, I don't know how I could serve the Lord or talk to people about the gospel because I'm so shy and I have a hard time talking to people. Just bring what little you got. And you know what? You're talking to the God who multiplied the fish and the bread and fed 5,000. He doesn't need you to bring a lot to the table. He just wants what? A willing heart. A willing, willing heart. Um, <clears throat> I always think about there's no shame for small gifts from this, pas this passage. There is no shame for small gifts. I think about some of the greatest gifts in my life have been the drawings that my kids bring home from school. How many of you got pictures of those and you put them where? The refrigerator. And those things are worth more than gold, and they're actually just popsicle sticks, Right? But there's a sense of value and worth. I'll never forget, just a, a few weeks ago, Gideon, my adopted son, he came home from Awana, and he had this drawing of, of the family, and he had every one of us in stick figures. And it said, I love my family. My wife, that night, we tucked our kids into bed, and we just sat at the table, and we just weeped, just tears of joy, because there was something really precious to us about this little stick figure drawing that really looks kind of terrible. But you know what? His heart, his heart came through in what little he had to give. Isn't that beautiful that that's how God looks at our resources? Isn't that beautiful that that's how God looks at us? He doesn't need us to bring a lot, just a willing heart. Um, so if you're here and you come to church, and I've heard this mantra often, I feel guilty, I can't do more. I've heard this. I feel guilty because I can't do more. Just do what you can. Just bring that little piece and see what God can do with that. Whether you're a single mom just trying to keep your kids from running and burning the place down, whether you're elderly and your body doesn't function the way that it used to, 
whether you're a widow or whether you're sick or whether you're injured, I just want you to bring a willing heart. Don't, don't ever, church, don't ever feel ashamed. If you come and you bring your energy and your, your presence here, if, if all you can give is just your presence here, then praise the Lord. God loves a cheerful giver, if that's what you have to give. God is the objective judge of each individual's potential and its value. Some are given much. So another principle in Scripture is that some are given much, and there is an abundance. Well, we have 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15. How are we to treat an abundance? And what does an abundance look like? Because I, I feel like in the U.S. today, abundance is kind of skewed. I bet you if you ask many people in town, do you consider yourself poor? Would you get a lot of yeses? Yeah. But then you'd ask them, do you have food? Do you have running water? Right? Do you know where you're going to sleep tonight? Right? Those are, those are huge abundances. In fact, studies done, and this is skewed a little bit since the recession in 2008, but the statistic used to show us that people in the U.S., the Western world, and, and particularly people in the U.S., we live in the top 1% of the entire world's wealth. That's now since, I think, uh, the latest statistic I said is we're still in the top 10%. So if you're here and you uh, are in the U.S., we're still in the top. So we have abundance, don't we? And maybe when you begin to compare yourself to guys like Elon Musk, you feel like, I don't have much to give. But again, God doesn't look at that, does he? <clears throat> so 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15 says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So he's asking for an offering in Corinth, and he says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And it's talking about in the Old Testament when they were in, ex or when they were in the desert, God, they collected manna every day, right? Uh, this is the nation of Israel. By the way, did you know they were in 11 square miles for 40 years? That was the wilderness they wandered. 11 square miles for 40 years. And in those 40 years, God supplied for them manna. And he said, those who gathered a lot had what they needed, and those who gathered a little had what they needed. And so there's this idea then, then for us as a church, if we have an abundance, if God is really blessing you, there's this sense that that is a time, if you are in a time of abundance, is it's a time for supplying their need. That means the needs of the church are brothers and sisters in Christ as a priority. 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15, that's what that says. By the way, did you know that having wealth is not a bad thing? It's not wrong to have some element of, of wealth. Did you know that the, the book of Luke, if you start the book of Luke, it, Luke says, oh, excellent what? Theophilus. Oh, excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a benefactor for the physician Luke to go and investigate and to interview and to look at the life ministry of Jesus and to write it all down. And you know what came out of that? The book of Luke. The book of Luke. And so we have past, whole parts of the Bible because there were wealthy financiers that gave us the Word of God that we now read 2,000 years later. It's not wrong to have wealth. So we have to be cautious. 
treasury was to the temple. So when it says the temple treasury, it was for upkeep of the temple at the time. It was to, to pay the priests. And, and I think about the many ministries that come out of the church today. And we have passages in the Bible that, is it okay to pay some people for the hard work that they do in ministry? And we have passages in the Bible that say that a worker is worthy of their wage. A worker is worthy of their wage. And so we ought not expect people to just work for free. That's not an expectation that the Bible says that we should give. And here's another thing, though, as we labor for these giving principles, we need to understand that we ought not force everyone to the same starting line, but can certainly turn around and help other fellow saints forward. So what does this mean? Well, there's kind of this idea that if you have a lot, you need to give more, right? So this idea that we've battled uh, for a long time, the idea of communism, that we need to push everyone down to the same level of wealth so that they operate it the same way. And we know that that's not a biblical principle. It's not a concept. That's compulsory giving, right? That's that error that we don't force people to give. You ever thought, man, if I could just sit down with Elon Musk or Bill Gates, I would tell them how they should spend their money. If they would just let me be the financial advisor, I could tell them how to fix the world's problems. That's not to you. That's not for you. Your, your dwelling is not to think about how you should spend others' money, but you should bring the little that God has blessed you with. Right? That is what we give. We don't look. This is the idea of comparison. That's what puts us in this idea, or that's what puts us in a poverty mindset. You and I are not in poverty. And by the way, when we give, there's a priority to the saints. And th this is a, so a principle that we've had to learn and practice here at the church. The highest priority, as far as the scriptures speak about, and you see it in, in many, many passages, when we give, we give to one another. There is a higher priority for the saints, for the believers, that we are to prioritize the believers, we are to prioritize the church. Does that mean that we don't help some of the social ills of non-believers? No, it just means that they're not the priority. The priority has to be our benevolence. Our help goes to the believer, the church. You've heard the passage, the least of these. The least of these. Finish the rest of that passage. What does it mean? The least of these, my brothers and sisters. Well, then Jesus defines, who are my brothers and sisters? Well, he says later, earlier on, right? He says, those who do the will of my Father are my brothers and sisters. So there is a clear priority then in the least of these to the church. When I first found that out in every one of the giving verses and the blessing one another, that the priority is always to the church. When I first heard that, I struggle with that. Can I admit that to you? Because I thought it was the church's role to fix the ails of the, of the world and to, to share the gospel. But there is a sense that from the overflow of our love of one another, what happens? The world gets changed. What changes the world? Not our money. Brothers and sisters, I need you to hear this. Our money does not change the world, and it will not change the world. Our love of one another is like our memory verse. They will know who we serve by how we love one another, and that includes how we treat one another with our resources, not just to the social ailments of our day. See, the poor will always be with you. It reminds me of the woman who poured out the expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus and the disciples were all mad. What did they say? That perfume could have been sold for a ton of money, a whole year's worth of, of salary, and it could have been given to the poor. And Jesus says what? Leave her alone. She's done a good thing. She's prepared me for burial, right? And there was a sense that wasn't a waste. 
that was something beautiful. That was an aspect of worship. We also have that encouragement in 2 Corinthians as we think about where our giving goes and, and what this looks like. The, the, there is a principle, 2 Corinthians 3, 10 through 12, says, For even when we were with you, so this is Paul encouraging the Thessalonians, we would give you this command. So this is a command from the apostles in the early church. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. It's kind of harsh, Paul. That's in the Bible? For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Not such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I want you to hear up front that sounds harsh, doesn't it? You don't work, you don't eat. Ever had somebody tell you that? It kind of sounds harsh, but where's the heart here? Where's the heart of Scripture is getting to is this. When you bring what little you have, even if it's a little, even if you're working a minimum wage job and you bring a little bit, where does it show that your heart is going to? To the Lord. It's a sense. You guys doing okay? You're giving me a lot of flat faces. I know this is a hard topic. Pastor's talking about money. Um, But we sometimes can walk in what, what we call a debtor's mentality. We say that we must endure loss and hardship and never have nice things or enjoy as long as someone else is. I can't enjoy good things because other people are suffering. I call this a a debtor's mentality, a debtor's mentality. And as guys, we talked about this is compulsory giving. There's no practical end to a debtor's mentality. We will never fix the ailments of society. But what matters more than anything else is the heart, giving from the heart. We need to have an eagerness to give and not an obligation. I've often used the example, if I were to show up in front of my house and I'm ready to date my wife and I ding dong and and I'm sitting in front of the house and Becky answers the door and I throw flowers at her and I say, I heard you're supposed to like get flowers or something for people that you like. And I think I'm supposed to take you out to dinner now just so that we can have a healthy marriage. How do you think her response is going to be? She may kick me in the shin, and she should kick me in the shin if I say that, right? Why? Where's the eagerness? Now, rewind the scenario back. I show up to the front door, and I'm like, honey, I learned your favorite flower. I can barely pronounce it. They're ranunculuses, by the way. And I said, I've studied your favorite place to go. I know what your favorite food is. I know you can't eat beef. And so I'm going to take you to the, the, the best dinner you can have because I've been, st- I'm so excited to take you out to dinner right now because I just, I love you. I'm eager to do that. Very different, right? How many of our walk in our relationship with, I heard I was supposed to do this. I, I heard I was supposed to show up on Sunday and that's what church is all about. I heard I have to read my Bible sometimes. So I only read it as much as I need have to. Man, can you imagine? I only listen to my wife as much as I have to. See how that one works for you. But the gospel says, gospel-centered giving says something different. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, was Jesus rich? He's the God, a creator of all wealth. He is, he owns all things, everything. He is the wealthiest being in all existence. But though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became what? Poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
If you're a believer here, the Bible literally calls you what? Rich. You're rich. I mean, you're going to walk out of the church here today and it's like, no matter what you have, you're like, I am rich in the grace of our Lord. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, right? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us that that's the gospel, that Jesus, he was rich and he became poor so that we might become rich. If you struggle to give, like if your heart, you have this reticence to give, and some of you struggle with this. Some of you don't understand what it's like to struggle with this because you have the gift of giving. But there's a, there's a struggle. If you struggle to give, then your heart is in danger. Why? Because you'll let God manage every other part of your life except for your resources, except for your money. And Jesus was pretty clear. You can't serve both God and money. You can make your money serve God, but you can't serve them as two masters. We cannot let our wealth and our money control us. And here is the prescription then is to give. As we look at this widow and what she had to bring, she gave and she understood a principle of the kingdom that the other men in their abundance and in their wealth just couldn't fathom and couldn't understand. So the problems of compulsory giving, uh, it assumes that God needs, God needs the money. God doesn't need your money. Did you know the whole purpose of giving and the principle of giving in Scripture is because it benefits you more than it benefits him? Because it tears down an idol in your heart. And you're laying down an idol at who is truly God in your life when you're able to give. When you give, it's more for you and your heart than it is for God. Because God, he can infinitely multi multiply anything. He's a God of unlimited resources. So the, the last principle that I want you to see here is the widow was doing something. She was practicing heavenly truths in reality. She knew what was more valuable. It's a lot like the parable that Jesus said about the man who sold everything so he could buy the treasure in the field. Do you remember this? And Jesus said, uh, and basically, this is the kingdom of heaven is like that because its value is so far beyond what we can see. She understands this. And as I think about the parable of the dishonest manager and just out of time, uh, you know, definitely read it. But ultimately, it says that your physical state, how you practice, what you do with your wealth and your resources now is how you're practicing for when Jesus comes back or for your eternity with him. It's time of practice. Giving now is a heavenly practice. And it's a very serious uh, Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in what? In much. In much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And so that immediately takes our brains, our minds to the scenario in the early church. These two people, their names are infamous, Ananias and Sapphira. You guys know these? Have you heard the story where they lied about what they give? They wanted the benefit of being seen as givers, but they lied about it. They were dishonest. Because what's the problem? Why did Jesus? Why why did the the apostles? Why did they die in front of the apostles because they lied about their giving? That seems a little harsh, yeah. Can you imagine if that happened today in the church? People just drop dead because they were lying about their finances. 
But but there's this sense that, that the gravity with which the Bible takes into consideration, this is not Shane teaching, this is what the Bible says, that there, there is a real danger. We lie down sometimes our wealth, our crowns, our everything, our resources at the foot of the, of the throne of God because he is more valuable than anything we can accrue in this life. Ananias and Sapphira, as they began to lie about their finances, what was wrong? It was their heart. It was their heart. How's your heart? How's your heart? A good indicator is what do you do with your money? So for me, that ring that I bought Becky as a young man, at the time it was a big expense. But you know what? I was delighted to buy it for my bride. I have no doubt that if we bring our little resources together here is even just First Baptist uh, in Riverton, and we give that to the Lord out of cheerful hearts, and say, God, do whatever you will with it. I'm not in charge of it. I'm not going to control it. It's yours. I wonder what God can do with hearts. Not the money, with the hearts of cheerful givers. So now I, I live by a budget most months. I say most months. We have our, our giving worked into our monthly budget because we can't just give big lump sums. And as we, I realized I did not time this to our fundraiser for the Parsonage. This was not timed. This is just what Mark brought us to. But there's the idea that, that we had to work it into our monthly budget. I believe that the everyday working man, um, when we put into our budget giving and train our hearts out of, out of cheerfulness, what God can do with us is pretty incredible. And by the way, my wife isn't stressed out anymore about what we can buy or not buy because she knows we have this thing called a budget. Uh, so what? So what? So what? Make sure that whatever you give, it's out of love for the Lord and his people. He is sure to see its immense worth no matter the amount. And then what? So life groups, and we'll see if I can get this up. It's still trailing behind me pretty far. What is my heart telling me about my value of God and his people based on my giving? And what can I do to make love giving a normal part of my walk with Jesus? 